Welcome to the online home of Providence Christian Church in Cape Coral, Florida. If you would like more information, visit us online at ProvidenceCapeCoral.com. Now may the Lord bless the preaching and the hearing of His Word. continue uh, looking at uh, the minor prophets. Uh, we're going simply in canonical order. So we did Hosea, and uh, you turn the page, and we come to uh, this prophet, Joel. Um, it's not a book well-known by many Christians, and that's a shame because uh, John was heavily influenced by it when he wrote his uh, book of Revelation. Peter quotes from it. Paul quotes from it. So my hope is to make it more uh, familiar to us all, and to be shaped by it. Um, we're going to look this morning at chapters 1 and 2, but I'll only read chapter 1, um, and then throughout the sermon I'll refer to things throughout chapter 2. So hear now the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction comes from the Almighty... It comes. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, you have promised that your word would not return to you void, but that it will accomplish its purpose. Sometimes its purpose is to soften hearts and to bring about obedience. At other times, your word comes to harden already calloused hearts and to blind those who 
only say they are seeking the Lord. But our desire today, Lord, is that the purpose for your word going forth is not to harden anyone in this room, but to soften each and every heart, beginning with the one who proclaims this sermon today. Would you bring about a great revival in our hearts that we might more and more hate the sin that so easily clings to us and causes us to stumble as we make our way home? For those who don't know you, Lord, who are in the words of Paul right now, children of wrath, destined for wrath, I pray that today you would conquer them, that you would make them children of the living God, and that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus and God's people said together. Amen. You may be seated. When I was a young boy, I witnessed a man wrestle a raccoon. It was sometime in the early 80s, and I was with a couple of my friends, and we were riding our bicycles around our neighborhood in Chicago, and we came upon a uh, city of Chicago water employee who was, what we saw, only just from his waist down. He was all the way down in a storm drain fighting something. And so, thinking it was our business, we took our bikes up to him and inquired what was it uh, he was doing. And he informed us that there was a raccoon down there with its babies and that uh, she didn't get out. None of them were going to live. And so he was trying to get him out. And so as I was looking at this man, I saw that uh, he didn't just start this fight. He was sweating profusely. And I, I could see that he had deep, fresh scratch marks all the way up his forearms. And as I looked at his leather gloves, they were stained pink with blood. And one of us asked, you know, whose blood is that? And he said, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> it's... I know the thing bit me and it punctured through my leather gloves, but I also know she's hurt and I've, I've tried everything to get her out. And then one of us, I hope it wasn't me, I don't remember, it's fuzzy and it's 40 some years ago, uh, but in a moment of bravado said, you know, if that thing bit me, I'd kill it. Why don't you just kill that stupid thing? And I remember his look of just disgust, but also sadness. And he said, I don't want to kill it. I want it to live. I'm going to do whatever I can to get it out. Now, I don't know how that uh, episode played out, because I think we became a disturbance to him. He sent us off. Uh, so I don't know whether the raccoon was saved or not. But I do know this, is that that desire, that I don't want it to die, I want it to live, is a dim picture of the portrait that Joel paints of the Lord in this short book. Joel, like many Old Testament prophets, warns about something that they call the day of the Lord. Joel speaks of it. Nahum speaks of it. Amos speaks of it. The day of the Lord. This is the day when God comes and He makes all things right. He is going to address every sin, every act of rebellion, every behavior of mistrust or disobedience. That day of the Lord is what Joel says is coming. 
upon this earth. But the Lord comes today in order to meet with us to say to you, but I desire that you should live. That is to say, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, the Lord brings you here to say, I desire that you should live. And that you would see that I did everything possible to save you. For a day is coming when my, mer- when my mercy is no more. A day is coming when my patience has dried up. A day is coming when I will come as a judge and give to you exactly what your rebellion is owed. But he says, I want you to live. But the same message comes to those of us who have already embraced Christ. Because each and every one of us has areas in our lives where we keep Jesus at arm's length, believing that a full submission to him would be a compromise of joy or satisfaction. And so, while we trust Christ and while we endeavor to live for Him, we all have pockets of resistance that remain. And Jesus comes to us today to say to you and to me, come to me. I have given you life. And I want you to live in that life that I have given to you. the ways the Lord is going to communicate this to us is through the book of Joel. The book of Joel throws us right in the middle of some sort of national catastrophe that has occurred. And we'll talk about what that is. But what Joel does as a prophet is he says, this past event that we went through, it's just a picture it's a snapshot. It's a, it's a preview of a coming attraction of something far worse that is coming. And therefore, be wise, be warned, turn to the Lord. Because of what happened in the past, which is a picture of the future, the wise will turn from their folly and run to the Lord. That's basically chapters 1 and 2 in a nutshell for you, but we'll drill down a little bit here. We'll look at the past disaster. We'll look at how that points to the future calamity. And then how we are to respond in the present. Take a look at verse 1. Verse 1 tells us everything we know about Joel, which is precious little. We get his name and his daddy's name, and that's it. We don't know when this book was written. Uh, scholars are divided on that because uh, Joel seems to be addressing a temple that is up and running. Many think that this occurred prior to exile, uh, whereas others say, but there's no mention of a king, so it's probably post-exilic. And I don't have an answer for you. I know where it falls in the canon. It comes after Hosea, but there's really no clues here that would indicate when this was written. Uh, or even, to make matters even worse, why it was written. Uh, We don't have any mention of idol worship. We don't have any mention of uh, the neglect of the poor or the needy. We don't have any mention of indifference to worship. We don't know what brought about this book or when it was written, uh, but it's one of those cases where it doesn't matter because the original audience knew. And there's still much that we can gather from this book that generations and generations of Christians have learned through this precious, short uh, book of Joel. So, 
All that to say, we don't know why it was written or the historical details, which I typically try to give you uh, at the beginning of a study of a book. However, what we do know is that a disaster has fallen upon Israel. And what God was doing through that was warning them. Uh, take a look, if you would, at verses 2 and 3. This wasn't just any disaster. It was unprecedented. And listen to what Joel says. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So whatever this disaster is, and Joel is doing sort of poetic Build up. He hasn't even told us what it is yet. He's going to in verse 4. But what he is saying is that what has happened is unprecedented. And you should not only remember this, but tell your kids about it. And make sure your kids tell your grandkids and your grandkids tell their kids about this event. It reminds me of growing up in Chicago. As far as I know, it snowed every single year when I was in Chicago. But every single winter, I heard about the infamous Chicago blizzard of 1967. See, Ron's shaking his head. If my parents were here, they were shaking their head. This was unprecedented in terms of the snowfall. And two, or, or two feet of snow fell in the course of uh, 24 hours while kids were in school and while people, well, moms and dads were at work. It effectively shut down the city. I have stories my uncles told me, my dad told me, my mother told me about where they were when this blizzard fell. I, I feel like I've heard so much I was there, but I wasn't even alive yet. But that's what Joel is describing here. This isn't just a calamity. This is one that is for the record books. But it's not snow. It's a locust invasion. Look at verse, verse 4, please. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now, obviously, we don't encounter um, locust plagues here in South Florida, but it was not uncommon for them in the ancient Near East. It also isn't uncommon for them to still occur in Africa today. Uh, Senegal had one not even five years ago. And as I was reading on uh, locust invasions, it came to my attention that some of the worst locust invasions in history happened in our country in the 1800s. Uh, there was a locust called the Rocky Mountain locust, which is now extinct. Uh, DDT uh, did it in, by the way. Uh, but in 1875, there's numerous reports of this horde that fell upon Southern California, Southern Texas, and, and stretched all the way up to Minnesota. They said this horde was 1,800 miles long and 110 miles wide of locusts. And then when they would land, they would land and they would eat all the melon, all the barley. They would strip apple trees of all of their leaves and then their bark. And then when they ran out of that, they would eat down the fence posts. We have uh, re reports from uh, papers in California of, of, of wives running out and throwing towels over their gardens to try to preserve it, and the locusts ate them. 
women hanging out laundry on the line. The locust ate the laundry. That's a picture here of what Joel is describing. It's complete devastation. Look at verses 8 through 12. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering, the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. This was the way they were paid, by the way, through the grain and the the wine. Well, you're not getting that. Why? Because the fields are done. The vines have been chewed down to the ground. Verse 10, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. It goes on and on. In addition to the devastation, Joel describes the numeric strength of this horde in verses 5 to 7. Look there real quick. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it's cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth. It's the fangs of a lioness, and it's laid waste my vine. My vine is one of the descriptions the Lord uses of Israel itself, a vine he pulled out of Egypt and planted in the Middle East, and splintered my fig tree, another image regularly used in the prophets for Israel itself. Why did this happen? Why did this locust invasion fall upon Israel? Well, the first reason is It came as a judgment against sin. Again, we don't don't know why or what particularly was going on. We're simply not told. But what we do know is that locusts in the Old Testament are a symbol of judgment. You remember they appeared as one of the plagues that the Lord sent upon Egypt when they refused to let Israel go. The Lord sent locusts to decreate Egypt, to strip from them the possibility of ongoing life as they knew it. So it's a picture of judgment. But also, the Lord warned His people through Moses, Deuteronomy 28, that when you enter into this land, if you turn against Me, though you sow in the field, I will send locusts upon you for your disobedience. Joel understood, and as we are to understand, that when we live in this world where things like natural disasters occur, we are not to have simply a meteorological explanation for them. But instead, when things like natural disasters come, they function, one, as judgment, and two, as a warning. If Joel were here today, I don't think he would in any way deny that last year a breeze started off of the west coast of Africa that created a tropical wave, which combined with air and sea temperatures created the situation for a tropical storm to develop, which then continued to grow in intensity and moved into our area and became what we know as Ian. He would not deny any of the science behind it, but he would say, don't you dare see Ian 
as something devoid from the one who caused the wind to blow in the first place. And in the event that you think, well, this is Old Testament, whatever that means. (laughs) This perspective is found right in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. John spends three full chapters talking about trumpet warnings. Trumpets that will blast from the time of the ascension of Christ to His return, which warns the world through things like tornadoes and tsunamis and viruses and food shortages and the collapsing of human empires. These all, in John's words, are trumpet blasts warning that this is but a preview of what is coming. Joel would say Hurricane Ian was but a gentle breeze compared to the tempest that is coming. The 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami is like a little ripple on a pond compared to the deluge of judgment this world will face. In fact, we think John was heavily influenced by chapter 2. You remember, again, like I said, beginning in Revelation chapter 8, for three chapters, John says, I heard a trumpet blasting warnings to the world. And if you look at chapter 2, Joel says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Before we move on, let me, let me just say here that I know you often see preacher kooks, you know, on TV that blame everything and say everything is judgment of God. Went to Publix and they didn't have my favorite soda. Well, it's judgment. (laughs) That's not quite what we're saying here. But what Joel and John both tell us is that God does warn the world through natural disasters of a greater calamity that is coming. And what that means is that a part of our witness a part of having actually being shaped by what Joel is going to say here and what John says in, in Revelation, part of our faithful testimony is giving answer to that question that many non-Christians often rightfully ask us. We say, why, why are there things like tornadoes? Why are there tsunamis? Why are there viruses? Why do human empires come and go? Why? This doesn't seem to be the kind of situation that we would find if, as you say, God is all-powerful and is all-good. So why are there hurricanes? Why, Why are there tsunamis and tornadoes and viruses? Why? And while we can't give perhaps an exhaustive answer, we can give some. We can say, you know, you're right. This isn't the kind of world we would expect was created by a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving. We would expect that if that's the case, then God and man would be living together in harmony and in an arena free from calamity. And that once existed. What you long for did exist. And the day is coming when the Lord returns, when He will recreate 
renew the heavens and the earth and that original Edenic situation will be restored in superabundance. God and man living together in perfect harmony and in harmony with one another and in harmony even with creation itself. But that day is not now. But it is coming. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, when that day of judgment comes, you will not survive. So turn to him. While not an exhaustive answer of everything that God intends behind these calamities, we do have a true answer. Don't shrug your shoulders and say, well, I don't know. Don't be a coward to say that this is a warning. The day of the Lord that is coming. It's to that future day that Joel shifts here, beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 2 opens with the command to blow a trumpet. You know, don't think of a brass instrument here. Uh, Think of a ram's horn or a goat's horn. They called the shofar. The, The trumpet throughout the Old and New Testament is typically associated with the announcement of judgment. It was used for other things within... Israelite worship, but I mean, you think primarily of uh, the Lord's instruction to his people to circle Jericho for seven days blowing trumpets. That trumpet sound was saying, your end is coming. Remember also, as I noted here, the book of Revelation, it says seven trumpets that will blast throughout this time while we wait for Christ in terms of tsunamis and hurricanes and viruses and food shortages and all those kinds of things, they are God's blasting of a horn that this is but a preview of the day that is coming. Not only so, Jesus Himself said that when the Son of Man returns, He will come with the angels and they will be accompanied by the trumpet sound of God. Paul as well says that when Christ returns, He will come with the cry of an archangel and with the trumpet sound of God. So, The trumpet regularly throughout the Old Testament is signaling, it's a warning that you are going to be called to an account for what you have done. So with that in mind, let's look at uh, verses 1 through 3. Remember, Joel saw a literal locust invasion which became the vehicle for him to say, the day of the Lord will be like this. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds, thick darkness like blackness. There is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful army. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Verse 3, fire devours before them. Fire, the typical uh, image of judgment in the Old Testament. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. And then watch this. It's the undoing of Genesis 1 and 2. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them is a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes. So Joel here is using typical Old Testament apocalyptic language for the day of the Lord. It's an uncreation of the world, a decreation, whatever 
word you want to use there. So in the beginning, God said, let there be light. But on that day, darkness. In the beginning, God created a habitable place for our, our, our first parents and put them in a garden. But God says, but on this day, I am going to strip the earth of all life and any chance of survival. And Joel moves on, verses 6 through 9. That it's a relentless and systematic judgment. No one will escape it. It's like locusts that will crawl into the windows and into the floors and under the beds and into the cupboards. There's no escaping this judgment. Look at verse 6. Before them people are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge. Like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his own way. They don't swerve from their path. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in its path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses and enter through the windows like a thief. On that day that is coming, there will be no second chances. There will be no pleading your case. There will be no justification for refusing to embrace Christ. Any weapons that you perhaps are planning today to defend yourself while you would not make much of Jesus, Joel says, your weapons are useless on that day. Then in verses 10 and 11, there's a final cry of defeat that ends with, who can endure this? Look at verses 10 and 11. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who can endure this day? Who can stand on this day? The answer that I've often heard from people as I'm trying to share with them the good news of Jesus is that if there is a God and there's a judgment, I'll be fine. After all, I'm not as bad as some people. I take care of my kids, don't cheat on my wife, pay my taxes. I vote. A lot worse people than me. So yeah, I think I can stand. I think I can endure that judgment. Pretty good guy. The problem with that kind of answer, of course, is that it's built on a faulty presupposition. Namely, that when we stand at the judgment, that we will be assessed against one another. Nowhere in these 66 books does it even suggest that. Nowhere are we told, did you do better than a Democrat? Hey, you're straight. Surely you'll be saved. You haven't cheated on your wife like this guy. Nowhere are we told that the judgment will be based upon 
a comparison to one another. Instead, we will be assessed against the purpose for which you and I have been created, namely, to mirror our Creator. The standard against which you will be assessed is found in Leviticus 11. Be holy as I am holy. With the way you use your tongue, with the way you use your body, with the way you use your time, with the way you think about people not from this country or of different political persuasions, they are to mirror the way in which Jesus, the perfect image of God, thought about the nations, thought about the poor, thought about the prostitutes that would weep at his feet. If you want to be compared against a human, then you will be compared against the one who is truly God and truly human in one person forever, the Lord Jesus Christ. And still, that should fill you with no boasting. Who can stand on that day? The psalmist asks the very same thing. Psalm 76, who can stand before you once your anger is unleashed? Who can stand before his anger? Another prophet says, who can stand before his indignation when his wrath is released? Who can endure that? Another psalmist says, if you, O Lord, should keep a record of iniquities... Who could stand? That's the answer that Holy Scripture gives us, that apart from some sort of interruptive, radical movement of God, you and I cannot stand on that day. We will not be able to endure it. The New Testament, though, does give an answer that there will be some that do stand. And going back to Revelation, when we looked at that, you remember Jesus opened a sixth seal and all this wrath of God, the undoing of the earth was coming. The kings and, and, and the free and the poor and, and the slave and all these people were saying, uh, mountains fall on us for the wrath of God has come. Who, who can stand? Very next verse, it says, John looked and he saw people standing. It's not an accident. There are those who will stand on that day, the future day of the Lord. Who is it? Well, the answer is those who have already gone through it. For some, the day of the Lord has already occurred. Let me explain. You remember some of that strange phenomena that accompanied the death of our Lord when He hung on a tree? That we're told, you know, and, and without reading uh, the new through the old, we find these things peculiar and maybe just odd. So Jesus is on the tree, and then for, for three hours, the Gospel writers tell us that darkness fell over the land. The, the, we don't know if it was a solar eclipse. We, we, we don't know. But darkness fell on the land. The sun was blotted out. The moon didn't give its light. The stars no longer provided any opportunity to see. Darkness fell over the land. And we say, well, that's kind of... 
interesting. I wonder what that means. And then we're told that at the moment where our Lord gave up His final breath, that the region was rocked by an earthquake. And we say, well, what do we make of these things? Well, the, well, the mind that is steeped in the Old Testament would have said, the stars, the moon, the sun, they're all darkened. There's an earthquake. No mercy has been shown to this man. What's going on? He just endured the day of the Lord. He just experienced the judgment that is to come. In the words of Joel, the great and very awesome day of the Lord just happened to whoever that man is that died. You see, Christian, the assurance that you and I have is that this great and very awesome day of the Lord, you've already gone through it. You've already been found guilty. You've already been sentenced to death. You've already been killed. And you've already faced eternal punishment. You've done your time. How so? Because those are all the things that Christ did on behalf of His people. This is why the Christian can look forward to that day not with fear and to read this and say, oh my goodness, I hope I make it. But rather to say, even the Son of God couldn't make it. But when He was raised from the dead, we were shown that God received the sacrifice He made for His people. He was condemned in their stead. He was sentenced in their stead. He paid the penalty for their for them, and He also endured eternal hell for them in that space of three hours. This is why Paul can say to you, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ has already died. How can you be condemned for something that Christ was already condemned for? Not only so, Paul says, not only did He die, but He's been raised. And He intercedes for you. You see, so this, this day that Joel describes isn't one that should cause us terror, but rather should move us to marvel at the depths of the love of God for us. Jesus Christ is the only human that has already faced the day of the Lord. Those of us who are united to Him by faith, Paul says, you died with Him. Not only so, you've already been raised with Him and you are in a way that defies our understanding. You're already seated in the heavens with Him. So intimate, so close, so fundamental is your union with Him. That when He was condemned, you were condemned. When He died, you died. When he suffered the pains of hell, so did you. But now he's been raised for our justification. And you are at peace with God. And now you can boldly and confidently look forward to that day that is coming and saying, Jesus Christ stood in my place so that I might now stand in the new heavens and the new earth restored fully to God and to one another and to the creation. It's good news, right?
you're not united to Christ, then this is still a future event for you. I mean, come on. I mean, if you think I can endure that day, God's own Son could not endure that day. When He took upon Himself our sin, your sin, justice demanded death. And you think somehow your situation makes you unique and you don't need to embrace Christ. I beg you, be wise. Be warned. Jesus says to you, come to me. I will give you rest. Or in the words of Joel, come to me. And I will walk through the day of the Lord so that you don't have to. But you must come to him. That's the response given uh, to us, how we should all respond to uh, Joel's words. Take a look there, if you would, at chapter 2, and we'll end here. So there's a past calamity that points to a future one, and here is the present response, chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Verse 14 now, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Let me just stop there. Joel isn't saying, hey, let's break, let's come before the Lord in repentance and, you know, flip a coin. Maybe he'll forgive us. Who knows? That's not at all what he's saying. What he is saying here is that the Lord may give to us back the, the tangible blessings of the grain and the wine that have been taken from him. That's fully within his sovereignty to not withdraw from us the consequences of our sin. Verse 15, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. See, what are these the words? These are the words of a judge who in the book of Ezekiel says, Turn, turn, won't you turn and live? I have no desire or no delight in the destruction of your life, turn to me and live. For why will you die? Maybe you've never turned to Jesus, and he with outstretched arms to you today says, come. But let me offer also a word of encouragement to those of you who have turned to Christ. For those of you who are convinced that, yeah, I, I understand that Jesus has embraced the day of the Lord in my stead. I understand that I was condemned and I was killed. I served my sentence and that I've been raised and Christ's righteousness has been given to me. I understand all those things. And yet, your heart is broken today. Because you still see remnants of rebellion in your heart. You still see areas in your life that are out of accord with what Christ calls you to. Maybe you hear the voice of doubt this morning that says, you know, these kinds of sins shouldn't be present. These kinds of struggles shouldn't be present if you've really been born again by the Spirit of God. Maybe you hear that today. Maybe your own doubting flesh rises up to accuse you. 
Let me give you two encouragements. The first is this. You're in good company. If your fundamental desire is to love the Lord and to walk in obedience, and yet you see yourself doing the very things that you hate, Paul said he did too. Listen to what Paul says. The man who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Listen to what he says in Romans 7. He says, sometimes I don't understand my own actions. I have the desire to do what is right, but I do the very thing I hate. Anyone? That's 7.15. A few verses later, he confesses, I don't always do the good that I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Anyone? Have you been taught the lie that if you've been walking with Jesus, you should get to a point where there's no sin or no struggle, no ongoing remnants of what Paul calls the old man within you? Do you allow Satan to come along and say, Aha, you did this again. You're not born again. Well, then Paul is also excluded from the kingdom. The very things I want to do, I don't often do them, or as often as I'd like. But the things that I hate, the things that I detest, the things that killed Jesus, I find my heart running to these things. First encouragement then is that you're in good company. Here's the second encouragement. The second encouragement is this, is that if you are, in the words of Joel, if your heart is rent, if your heart is broken before the Lord over your own sin, this is a sign of God's grace in your life. It is a sign that he who began a work in you will not abandon it. I came across something not long ago written by uh, one of the uh, professors at our, our Reformed Theological Seminary, Guy Prentice Waters. That's a name familiar to some of you. I came across a quote. I thought it was so good. I shared it with Peter. I said, is this good? He says, that's good. So I'm going to share it with you this morning. This is what he says. He says, when the believer finds himself grieved over the presence and power of remaining sin and his inability to serve God in the way that he wants, the believer should recognize this grief as evidence of the grace of Christ in his life. Here's why. He goes on to explain. Because the non-Christian is incapable of that struggle. The non-Christian does not love the commandments of God. The non-Christian doesn't love the law of God. And you say, well, yeah, I've met some that do. Well, outwardly, they do. The Bible tells me they don't. The non-Christian doesn't share the Christian's delight and commitment to God's law. And so he goes on to say, therefore, when the believer is sincerely committed to following Christ and despite himself, find himself engaged in sin and even in the vice grip of sin, 
It's then that he may and ought to redouble his efforts to fight with confidence. How so? First, he reminds himself that he's already been condemned through Jesus Christ. And secondly, that Christ has given him everything necessary to continue to labor against that sin that is within him. See, that all that to say, what should trouble you most, what should trouble the human soul most is not that there remains sin, we don't become comfortable with it, or that we're not yet perfect. Nowhere in Holy Scripture have we been told that we would be delivered from that fight until we're in Jesus' presence. What should trouble your soul most is that if, is when there is no fight, no grief, no war against sin. That's when you should be terrified. Because it suggests that there is no spiritual life in you to begin with. You see, but if the grief is there, if, if it's the frustration with the sin, if you can with David say, against you and you alone have I sinned, if that is the burden of your heart, you're in good company. It was Paul's experience. He's now healed, but that's what he endured. But also, it's a mark of Christ's fingerprint upon you that says, you only experience this because I've given you life. In the words of Wesley, we sang earlier, the chains have fallen off, the dungeon is lit with light. I freed you, and now you want to walk in my ways because you belong to me. Therefore, be encouraged. Be reminded there's no condemnation for you and I've given you everything necessary to preserve you until you see me face to face and I heal you, body and soul. That's all I got. Let's pray. Thank you for tuning in for today's message. If you would like more information about Providence Christian Church in Cape Coral, Florida, visit us online at ProvidenceCapeCoral.com.